He konai purangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Alison, is it? It is, Alison. How Brenda. are you? Good cool. to meet you. They call me Bendy up here. <laughs> what do you reckon? Ah, uh, should be a pretty good day. We're in a bit of a Mount Free cycle at the moment, so some of the off-piece stuff, it's going to be uh, pretty slick underfoot, but the sun's out, the wind's pretty light, and it's coming in from the east, so uh, should soften up nicely some good spring corn skiing. Excellent. Well, I'm looking forward to you being my snow expert for All the morning. All good. All good. That's Brendan Nesbitt, and he's in charge of the Turoa Ski Patrol. He's also an avalanche forecaster, and boy, does he know lots about snow. Now, Katie, when he talks about the melt freeze cycle there, that's a fine piece of Kiwi understatement. What he really means is that the ski area is very icy first thing on a spring morning. We're off to find a patch of snow that's actually soft enough to dig a hole in. And on the way, I'm finding out just how many kinds of snow you can get and how different they all are. Chalky, squeaky, powdery, icy. <laughs> yep, slide for life. And we'll go over there, we'll put the, uh, the microphones on and we'll feel a little bit how this snow, if you were to ski it, it would sound like that. And then we'll find some ice over there and we'll, we'll let you know how that one feels. That was the sound of Bendy glissading down a really icy slope. We don't like stuff like that, we prefer stuff that sounds more like this. Now that was the sound of nice chalky snow. So Alison, just before we go any further, just to get down to the basics here, what is snow? I'm going to pass that one straight on to our snow experts. Oh, and by the way, as well as Bendy, who's our guide to snow on the ground, I've also enlisted Eric Brentstrom and Gerard Barrow from the Met Service. They're both extreme weather forecasters. So boys, what is snow? Snow is crystallisation of water that's been in the atmosphere. It's ice particles falling from the sky. Snow are ice crystals. Snowflakes are a collection of ice crystals. So what about hail? Because surely that's frozen water as well? A distinction should be made from hail, which is also ice, but hail starts life as, as raindrops which then freeze. So a big part of the difference between snow and hail, I've learned, is how they form. And I just love this next bit. Snow doesn't have a liquid phase. It is an ice crystal formed when water gas in the air changes directly to solid without going through a liquid phase. Now for this to happen, it turns out, you need a secret ingredient. To get an ice crystal, what is needed is something which is called an ice nuclei which is often a tiny piece of clay, but can sometimes be a small piece of bacteria. We used to think that it was dead bacteria, but research in the Northern Hemisphere has found that sometimes it's actually live bacteria. And how about this snow fact? The shape of every single snowflake is six-sided, a hexagon. Now, this process of really cold water gas Instantly freezing around that little nuclei, that little seed, if you like, is what the weather folk call deposition. Makes sense, eh? Water is being deposited on something. And so that's it? So now we have our snowflake? Not quite. The fun's just starting. There's an optimal temperature range where ice crystals can grow. It's called the dendritic zone. And this tends to happen up in the sky 
where the temperatures around about minus 20 down to about minus 10. So this zone is a bit of a snowmaking factory. It's round about 10 kilometres up above the Earth's surface and it's a sweet spot where there's enough water gas in the air, where the temperature is not too hot and not too cold, minus 15 Celsius is apparently just right, there's lots of bits of clay and probably bacteria for the ice crystals to form around and then, like a James Bond martini, it needs a good shaking. If the upward motion is reasonably strong, it may actually lift the ice crystal higher into the sky. It's gravity that's trying to drag the ice crystal down, but if you've got the air moving up because it's in a depression or it's the air blowing against the southern Alps and being lifted, it has to grow to a certain sort of size to actually fall faster than the air is going past it. So there's a little bit of a game about the thing getting big enough to fall. And then on the way down, it can bump into other snowflakes and they can hold hands. So sometimes what reaches the surface is quite a, a big flake made up of thousands of little flakes that are all touching each other and joined together. OK, so just checking, I've got all of this straight. These baby snow crystals start off really small and light. They get tossed around up in the air as if they're in a really cold clothes dryer. And as they go round and round, more water vapour is attaching to them, yeah? And they're also sticking to each other and starting to grow. Yeah, exactly. And that's how a snowflake is born. Oh, and there's a name for that bumping into each other and holding hands stage. Which sounds to me like adolescence. (laughs) And so what we normally see are actually snowflakes. They're a collection of ice crystals that's called aggregation. And so they continue to aggregate until they sort of reach the surface. One other thing I want to know, why is snow white? Because it reflects the light. Okay, so that's easy. And avalanches? An avalanche is a movement of massive snow moving down the hill. Why do they happen? They happen usually because of weak layers within the snowpack. And That's what yeah. Bendy was looking for in the snowpack, weak snow that might collapse or slide. And, of course, this is only going to happen if the slope is steep enough for snow to get some momentum. So a gentle slope won't slide, and actually you're not going to get an avalanche or something that's really steep either. You won't get a big build-up of snow there. So what avalanche forecasters say is to look out for anything between 30 to 45 degrees. That's the danger zone. Now, I'm assuming ski fields put all this effort into preventing avalanches. It's obviously a genuine risk for them. It sure is. An avalanche can injure and even kill people. And just at Turoa, there's quite a few places either on or above the ski field that could avalanche. So we're riding the chairlift up, and I'm getting a guided tour of the avalanche paths. Uh, You have quite a few of them? We do there, Alison. So on our books, we've probably got about 120. At the moment, we've just gone past Showoff. This is called mid Munger region, and then we have the Mungafero headwall up there, and Tup's Roll. His real name's Richard, but it's named after him. He was caught in an avalanche there and went off the bluff after he got caught and ended up fracturing his humerus and dislocating his shoulder. So, Ouch. Got, yep, he got one named after him, but that's the headwall, and that's a very big avalanche path up there. So, if the avalanche team decides that an area is at risk of avalanching, what do they do? Basically, they're going to set it off. Mm. So if it's small, they might ski across it because just their weight alone might trigger it. And, of course, while they're doing this, they make sure they can ski out of danger if they need to. They also have someone watching them and they're wearing safety equipment so they can be quickly found and dug out if necessary. If the potential avalanche is too big and dangerous to do that to, then they use explosives. They have, like, 
rocket launchers that they can fire from somewhere safe, or if necessary, they'll use a helicopter and drop the explosives from that, and that'll trigger the avalanche. Boom! Off it goes. And, of course, they're going to do this when the ski field is empty. (laughs) Just as well. I was going to ask that. Uh, That sounds like fun, explosives. Okay, and so once they're off and underway, are all avalanches kind of unfolding in the same way? Good question. No. I've discovered they come in two main um, flavours or types. Up here, a lot of the avalanche conditions we see are actually wind slab conditions because it's, it's slab conditions that have been made by the wind. Now, depending on that wind, whether it's broken the particles up to really fine pieces and, and it, what it does is it brings them and it tightly packs them into a stiff slab. A lot of times that can be a good thing, but if that stiff slab is sitting on a layer, it's what we call low-density snow. So you, you could think of it like you have a whole lot of concrete blocks that are sitting on eggshells or champagne glasses. Now, once you get that high density on a low density... And that's usually going to be that layer that's going to go. So that's what they call a slab avalanche. And a slab is just like it's like a plane of glass being smashing it with a hammer or something and then that whole plane just coming down and it fractures like a plane of glass where a loose wet sort of builds out a little bit more and is a bit more mushy. Mushy, that's a technical term, isn't it? No, that's one I've just made up right now. The boys will be loving me for it. So usually with a loose snow avalanche, it'll, it'll start off quite small and then start building, 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 bigger, 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 bigger. What happens when a person gets caught in an avalanche? Usually what will happen, depending on what sort of avalanche, if it's a slab avalanche, it'll fracture like a plane of glass. A lot of the times they'll stay on top of it and get mixed up with uh, all the big blocks, which can be very large, which create a lot of trauma. If it's a loose snow avalanche, what will happen is a lot of times they can actually end up buried. But you can also be buried in slab avalanches as well, depending how stiff they are. Avalanches are just a feature of our mountains though, aren't they? So if I'm not a climber or a skier, I don't need to worry about that. Well, actually, the biggest avalanche control program in New Zealand is on the Milford Road between Teano and Milford Sound. They do lots of bombing there in winter because they can get enormous avalanches that go right across the road, which they're trying to keep open for the tourists. Mm, okay. And, of course, avalanches aren't the only problem that snow causes. If you get snow down to low levels, it can block roads, stop farmers getting to their animals. Now, different places in New Zealand would get different amounts of snow, yeah? Yep. So, in theory, the Southern Alps would get the most. Yep, that would be fair to say. But we really don't know how much snow falls in most places because it's hard to measure. The ski fields now, of course, and Niwa is trying to measure it in some other places. They've got 12 snow stations, most of them in the South Island Mountains, where they automatically measure things like how deep the snow is. So what's the aim behind that? I mean, does it matter how much snow falls? Heck yeah. It does matter because most of that snow melts, and that melt water is really vital. Christian Zamet from Niwa says it's important for the economy. It's mainly the source of water used for irrigation and potentially water supply in some part of the country. We've been demonstrating that the amount of snow falling is impacting the amount of electricity. So there is a direct impact between uh, how much snow is falling and how much electricity is available and the price of the electricity. Thanks, Alison and Katie. That was an episode of the RNZ podcast, The Science Of, produced and presented by Alison Balance and Katie Gossett. Sound engineering for this episode was by William Saunders, and Tim Watkin was the executive producer. 
Our Changing World is produced by me, Claire Cannon, with help from Ellen Rikers. Our website is at rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. Tēnākoe i mai. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Claire Cannon. Have a great week. Kia pai. Tō wiki.